0: Welcome to Sex Ed with D.B. I'm your host, D.B. Let's get into it. If I were to tell you I was conducting a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, what would some of your hypotheses be? Well, I did do a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, so let me tell you what some of mine were. Number one, anxiety, tension, and stress will decrease during and after daily magic wand use. Number two, daily magic wand use will be associated with improved mood, confidence, and happiness when compared with no sexual activity. And number three, sleep length and sleep quality will improve during daily magic wand use when compared to no sexual activity. After running the numbers, two of those hypotheses were true, and one of them is false. Want to know which ones were true and which one was false? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magicwandexperiment to learn more about the experiment. Read some of my daily journals and watch some of my daily vlogs, and find the results of these hypotheses and a few others and so much more. I'm about to get personal here, so listen up. I'm gonna tell you a fun fact about me that you definitely didn't know. The lube that I use most consistently is Uberlube. I really mean it. If you were here with me right now, I'd tell you to go over to my nightstand drawer and tell me what you see. That's right, you would see a bottle of Uberlube. If you've never heard of Uberlube, let me tell you about it. Uberlube is a silky smooth silicone based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about Uberlube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of Uberlube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberloop.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50-plus years in business, Lionsden is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lionsden offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. Small business owners, freelancers, and contractors, listen up. If you're running a small business and you're making at least $60,000 in profit each year, you're going to love Collective. Collective is the all-in-one financial solution for self-employed people. They let you focus on your passion and not your paperwork. Collective handles all the corporate formation and compliance paperwork, taxes, bookkeeping, accounting, and even payroll. Go to Collective.com now and use code Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, to receive one month free. And make sure to tell them that Sex Ed with DB sent you. Hello, Sex Ed with DB fam. I hope you all are doing so well. I personally am doing phenomenally because today we have on a very special guest that I have been trying to get on the podcast for legit as long as we've been doing this. So the past uh, nine seasons, basically. Uh, we have Dr. Eric Sprankle on, who is a professor of clinical psychology, as well as author of a new book coming out. Uh, and in this episode, we talk about everything masturbation from how different religions feel about it to the self diagnosing phenomenon on social media to details and information on female ejaculate and squirting and so much more. Uh, check the show notes of this episode to pre order his book. DIY, the wonderfully weird history and science of masturbation. Uh, This is such a good episode. I seriously was like fangirling the entire time because I just think that he's so brilliant and so fucking funny on Twitter. If you don't follow him, go to at Dr. Sprankle on Twitter and just like scroll through. Honestly, you're going to laugh a lot because he's hysterical and really smart and a researcher and a sex educator and a professor, just cool dude all around. Um, just a quick note before we start, we have new merch. Um, we worked with Sadie from 20 some Designs, and I'm just so excited to have you check out our merch by going to sexedwithdb.com slash merch. Uh, we got tote bags, we got stickers, we got hats. We got a lot of stuff about body positivity and abortion and periods and all the good stuff. So make sure you check us out, rep your favorite sex ed podcast sex ed with db at sexedwithdb.com slash merch and here i am with dr eric sprankle dr eric Sprankel welcome to sex ed with db how are you doing today
1: great thanks for having me
0: of course. I've uh, been a fan for a long time. Uh, me and my team have really, really enjoyed following you on Twitter specifically and uh, just laughing right along at your really fantastic <laughs> tweets. So we're, <laughs> uh, we're really glad to have you. And and yeah, you do a lot of really amazing work and I'm excited to to chat with you today. Uh, Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about your work?
1: Sure. I'm Eric Sprankle. I'm a clinical psychology professor at Minnesota State University in Mankato. My specialty is within sexual health, and I've been at this, at least within academia, for 12 years now. I think I'm just starting my 13th academic year at MSU. Um, so yeah, full-time professor doing this.
0: Awesome. And how did you get into this? What's like your origin story?
1: Yeah, um, I know for the specific area that I'm in, in sexual health, the origin story was more, well, let me back up for a second, because when I get this question of like, what's What drove your passion for this topic of sexuality and sexual health? And like the egocentric part of me is like, is confused by that because my first thought is like, how are people not passionate about these
0: topics? Mm. You
1: know, like when there are careers that focus on masturbation and you're choosing accounting, like that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Right, right, right. Admittedly, that's egocentrism. You know, we're on our, we all have our own passions. We're all on our own journeys and everything. I mean, but specifically, we need
0: accountants also. We need those, right? Guys I know. Yeah, yeah. We, can't, people, we can't. We can't all
1: be just making jackoff jokes <laughs> all the time. Uh, society would collapse. Right. Um. But yeah, specifically as a profession, it was. You know, I was a, a psych undergrad starting freshman year, but. Second year, I took a, a psych of human sexuality class. This was at University of Cincinnati over 20 years ago now. And just realizing, you know, just being fascinated by the topic, but also realizing how much I thought I knew about the topic. But it was totally driven by myths and partial truths and misinformation. And it was just very eye opening for me to, to realize like this was a whole professional area of specialty within psychology. And it just hooked me in from there. I didn't always expect to be a a professor. I was actually trained to be a clinician. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of fell into academia um, after my postdoc. But this is a a perfect fit for me.
0: Yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, it definitely comes through in all of your content. And we're going to get into your book in a little bit. But first, I just wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about being a professor. So like, what what specifically do you teach? What do you love about teaching? What do your students kind of look like? Are they kind of the same, year or do you run the gamut across university? What, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So I teach uh, a couple of classes within sexual health and sexuality at the undergrad level, um, like a psychology of sexual health class, which is lower level. And then an upper level clinical sexuality class that focuses more on sexual dysfunctions, paraphilic disorders, things like that. And then I also teach some non-sexuality based classes like adult psychopathology, which is just teaching our grad students in our clinical psych program, um, all the different diagnostic criteria and how to differential diagnose. And then I also teach like psychology of aging. Somehow I got stuck mm-hmm. with that and taught that every semester for 12 years. Um, I, th- I think MSU saw that I took an aging related class in grad school and it's like, okay, you're teaching the like aging class for the rest of your life. <laughs> right. so I was like, okay, whatever. Uh, it's a fine class. <laughs>
0: That's interesting. Um, what Can you tell me more about that class? What does that entail? Uh,
1: Psych of aging. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's part of our developmental sequence that we have for for course offerings for our students. So we have a child, psych, uh, a child psychology class and adolescent psychology class, skips over everything from 18 to 65, because clearly nothing happens during those ages. <laughs> pretty <bleak>. And then, <laughs> right. So psych of aging picks up with older adulthood. So it's specifically within like Jero psychology. So I talk about just uh, adjustments relating to aging within older adulthood, as well as specific like mental health topics of, uh, that are more relevant for older adults, like neurocognitive disorders and, and things like that. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Wow. Really interesting. Uh, mm. talk to me about how the field specifically when we're talking about like sex and psychology, like how that field has shifted and changed over the years and specifically the years that you've been working in it.
1: Yeah, clinical psych in general, and I I think clinical sexuality kind of goes along with this too. Unfortunately, we're we're definitely up against a lot of armchair therapists on TikTok. Mm. So, you know, a lot of psych jargon has entered the mainstream cultural lexicon. So you hear a lot of specific words that were only used in therapy are now being applied to like everyday experiences. So this results, unfortunately, in a lot of self-diagnosing, misinterpreting everyday feelings and behaviors as symptoms of psychopathology, and sometimes even turning diagnoses or even just symptoms themselves into like personal identities. So that's been fun to 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 kind of see and to, to work against cuz that that shows up occasionally in class. Um you know Where I'm talking about a particular are topic.
0: feeling that or what do you mean?
1: Yeah, or at least they're just exposed to it, right? right? right. It's just another source of information and how I view it is like a source of misinformation yeah. that I have to counter, right? So I do that a lot on on social media but it also exists in my classrooms obviously as well that I'll be talking about a particular topic a student asks a question of like well I saw on TikTok or I saw on Reddit and all of a sudden I'm just Ooh, kinda like
0: feeling weird. It's
1: like, yeah, okay, I know where this is going, but let me hear you out. Right. What did you hear? What right. did you read? Um so it's 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 a lot of that. It's a lot of personal anecdotes that are being presented as like Generalized truths about the field, mm-hmm. both within clinical psych- psychology and within sexual health more specifically. And so it's just a lot of re educating and kind of reframing uh, some of the information that it, it exists on a lot of these platforms right now that aren't always accurate.
0: Hey everyone, DB here. I want to take a quick moment to highlight that the conversation around self diagnosis in the neurodivergent community is nuanced, with experts in the field holding different views on the topic. While Dr. Sprinkle voiced concerns, it's crucial to understand why many in the neurodivergent community support self-advocacy around diagnosis. Formal diagnoses for neurodevelopmental conditions can be challenging due to cost of testing, lack of support, and systemic barriers. It's worth noting that AFAB and gender nonconforming individuals in particular face difficulties having their symptoms recognized by a medical establishment that historically excluded them from discussions about neurodivergence. In such cases, self-diagnosis becomes a practical and empowering route, enabling individuals to articulate their neurodivergent experiences without formality, often bridging the gap to self-understanding before they're able to seek formal diagnosis. The journey to self-discovery for neurodivergent individuals is intricate, involving societal expectations and unique symptoms. Self-diagnosis becomes a vital tool, allowing individuals to reclaim their narratives and foster a sense of belonging. For additional perspectives, I recommend exploring Dr. Devin Price's work, particularly their book, Unmasking Autism. It adds depth to our understanding. Let's approach this conversation with empathy, respecting the diverse paths that people take in embracing their neurodivergence. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get a lot of that on my For You page of kind of like young people in particular kind of self-diagnosing themselves in the comments of like, oh yeah, like I have autism or I have ADD or ADHD, and I think they base that on like content that they see where someone with that diagnosis, maybe self-diagnosed or professionally diagnosed, and they see the behaviors that that person or those people exhibit. And they're like, oh, that's me too. That must be me. Um, right. Is that kind of what what students come in with?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I see on social media as well, too. So people in, in like comment sections or whatever. And yeah, I, I think you described that perfectly of like they, they see something that they're relating to. Right. And unfortunately, it's similar to, and not discounting that not everybody that talks about that doesn't actually have what they're talking about or isn't experiencing it in the same way. But those are personal feelings. Those are anecdotes, right? From a clinical psych perspective, I have to look at this, and especially from a researcher, I have to look at this. Can we get a little bit more of like an objective or an operational definition of what we mean when we're talking about this particular thing? How do we go about assessing it, right? Because assessment informs treatment. So there's, there's, a lot of clinical considerations with this. But what you see is that someone just feels validated by what they're hearing or seeing online and starts identifying with that. And then that feeling kind of turns into like, either a diagnosis or even a personal identity for themselves, Mm -hmm. not recognizing that These are very, very common feelings and behaviors, and it's only actually this diagnosis if it also exists in all these other settings and it's leading to distress or impairment and all these other things that armchair therapists and armchair psychologists don't understand because they don't have the the training in that. So to me, it's kind of like um, a horoscope. Right, and that we identify with horoscopes a lot because they're written so vaguely or vaguely enough, at least, that it applies to most people's lives, regardless of what zodiac sign you is or are. You just read the uh, particular horoscope, be like, oh yeah, that, that's that kind me. of reads true, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a similar phenomenon as that. It's something that's a universal experience and feelings, and it, we're thinking it's something unique.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. I like the comparison to a horoscope because I do think that ultimately what that shows me is that people want to be understood, right? Like people want to be understood by other people and they want to understand themselves in order to like best navigate the world, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like we can't fault them, right? But like how do we combat that? this like misinformation and disinformation that's happening? What do do we do about it as professionals? You know, you as a clinical psychologist and as, you know, someone who is essentially like a researcher and you you love data, facts, like the science, like how do we meet people where they're at and kind of like combat this issue?
1: Yeah, so- It depends on the context in which it's coming up. So the best I can do as an educator is just present the facts, right? And kind of maybe acknowledge what is happening with some of this phenomenon of like self-diagnosing or whatever. And try to, like you said, understand, have some compassion where it's coming from. I like to take it one step further. And I, I can't get this answer because it's very unique to an individual. But I often wonder, like, what function is this? serving or having in your life, mm-hmm. right? So you saw this online, you identify with identify with it, it feels good. Now yeah. you've really adopted this as your own. It's like, okay, what, what, what does that bring to your life? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you just feel understood? Um, do you feel part of some type of community of other people who share this label uh, that they label themselves with? Um, I'm just curious, of like the, the actual functional piece of like, Why is this important for you? Um, Because I I doubt I would see if, you know, I'm I'm not a practicing clinician currently, but if I were to see any of these individuals in in therapy, and I guess I I, I did in the past Mm -hmm. when I was doing clinical work, that people were coming in like self-diagnosed as like a sex addict. and. You don't like start off the session of like no that doesn't exist no you're not because you're never going to see that patient <laughs> right again, right They're you like, have to well, understand you can
0: go it. fuck yourself I'm going to find someone <laughs> right. who will validate me. exactly
1: right yeah you have to do that validation early on build that rapport and then start like picking picking it apart a little bit of okay why do you think this way mm-hmm. what what does this label serve you in your life did this alleviate concerns that you're having about your sexual behavior that you're able to put this label or quasi-diagnosis onto it and that's what the function of the of the label is it's like oh this isn't actually me see this mm-hmm. is a, a thing that I have right mm. so on a therapeutic level you can get into that you can't really get into that with you know a classroom of a hundred students and it's, Primarily just a lecture, so the best I can do is just spout the facts and answer questions as they come up. That if students have been exposed to something else,
0: sure, totally, yeah. It's we're going to get into this a little later with like masturbation addiction, porn addiction, sex addiction. You touch on this in your book, Um, Mm -hmm. but first, I want to turn to Twitter or X, whatever the fuck uh, (laughs) nowadays. But as I mentioned in the beginning, been a huge fan of you on Twitter for many years. I think you're if you don't if you don't follow. Eric, please, could you say your Twitter handle right now, actually?
1: Sure, at Dr. Sprinkle.
0: At Dr. Sprinkle, Please go follow him. He is so funny. The, the tweets really strike the perfect balance of like playful, educational, sarcastic, and shameless. And so you really poke fun at any person or institution who claims specifically that masturbation and porn are inherently harmful. And I'm wondering... How did this like become your brand? How did you like get so particularly invested in kind of like focusing in on these topics specifically?
1: Well, it was a surprise to me too. Like, (laughs) it was not early on in my career. I was like, I'm going to be known as the masturbation
0: guy. Right, right, right.
1: Um, Yeah. So I wasn't seeking it out. Uh, I think the origin of it really started more on Instagram. I, I, I was on Twitter for a long time. And I'm still on there a little bit. Um, I primarily use it as just kind of like fleshing out some ideas. And then the more the polished stuff ends up on on Instagram. And so I'm a little bit more active over there. And I think I posted something that was just what I thought was pretty innocuous, like masturbation is healthy, or at least it's not harmful to your body, something like that. And then Internet weirdos started, started calling me unprofessional and unethical for being very flippant about masturbation. Someone even called me an imperialist, which was a new one for me uh, <laughs> on this topic, um, because I wasn't warning my followers about the uh, supposed dangers of masturbation. Mm. And, so, and so that's why I should have my license revoked and I should be fired. Oh, my. And uh, thrown off of social media completely. <laughs> um, so that was really the genesis of looking at this topic within sex education and thinking that, yeah, I've got. A lot of work cut out for me in this. So I think there's a lot of misinformation that I thought was gone. Right? I thought like the, the the myths of, oh, if you masturbate, you'll go blind or have hairy palms or something. That we got over that when we were like eight years old or something right. like that. I didn't realize how prevalent these beliefs were still um, in a lot of different kind of like subcultures in our in our larger culture and how they show up a lot online.
0: Yeah, I mean we get you know a lot of dms mainly the topics that they cover are like am i pregnant like there's a lot of misinformation about like how people get pregnant they want an answer right away somehow from a stranger on the internet rather than just like (laughs) talk to their doctor or whatever um and is like am i okay for masturbating like that those are Correct. inevitably like the two most common questions that we get or some sort of like i feel guilty how do i not feel guilty or how does this feel better or you know there's so many questions that people have around masturbation and mm-hmm. i think like ultimately and you will be able to share this cuz you are a researcher and you made a book you wrote a book about mm-hmm. this which we will talk about but there's so much guilt and shame that come from our culture, mass media, our families, from school wherever whatever kind of messaging that we're receiving from masturbation, and it just ends up being that people have no idea how to feel comfortable around it. They have no idea that it is healthy there there is so much to learn around masturbation, and I wonder if you feel like the way in which you kind of retweet and tweet information about that like, does humor allow people to maybe engage with the topic a little bit more? Does it like break down those barriers? Does it allow them to kind of like be a little bit more comfortable? Or what do you think about like using sarcasm and humor in order to kind of approach it?
1: I I think that's just my natural style. So I'm just trying to be authentic as possible Mm -hmm. online and communicate with like my voice, which doesn't include a lot of humor in it. and And that's my goal. And I, I, yeah, I think that hooks people in. Um, whereas if I, if if my messaging had an absence of that, it's it's still factual information. It may just not be as engaging. Mm-hmm. Right? It may not be hooking people in. It may not be a unique voice because you can get a lot of this information like in plenty of different places uh, online. I'm not I'm not unique in talking about masturbation, but I think all of us uh, as sex educators or researchers or therapists who are all on the same side of kind of you know, trying to battle this wave of misinformation about sexuality in general and masturbation in particular, that we each have our own kind of voice and that that may appeal to certain Demographics more more than others, and I and I know my style may be a complete turnoff to a lot of people, and so I recognize that that I, I don't think I'm ever going to be invited onto like Good Morning America or sure. or, or something, um, and if I am, then I, I I think I went astray a little bit from <laughs> my right. my messaging, my vision, my mission, and all of this less a little bit less authentic, right? Uh, that's, that wouldn't be the best fit for me. Um, so yeah, I. I I, I intentionally try to insert humor just to kind of one to reflect this is my natural voice, as well as to kind of hook people in a little bit to maybe make it a little bit easier to kind of explore these complex topics, kind of shrunken down in a little bit of a humorous way.
0: Well, you hooked me, and I'm uh, I'm going to keep <laughs> following. So yeah, really, really happy to to have you on that platform for however long that platform exists. Yeah, you know, on the rocks, <laughs> but we're going to use it as we can. Uh, let's talk about your book. So you have a new book coming out on March 19th, 2024, uh, called DIY, the wonderfully weird history and science of masturbation. Tell me all about it. Like when did this idea come to you? Was this kind of a natural progression based on other research or kind of interest that you had in these topics or yeah, just tell me everything about it.
1: Yeah, it was it was born out of the Instagram comment section on one of my posts, like I was explaining earlier. And that was the the, the moment of like, oh, I think there's something here. And I started jotting down some different areas. I was like, OK, I, is masturbation like a large enough topic that a whole book can be written on it? Usually it's just like part of a chapter, at best a chapter. And so I started jotting down all of the different like subtopics that could be related to masturbation. And it was just a, a very, very long laundry list of of items like a couple of dozen and then I started condensing those into chapter outlines and like I I think there's something here and so yeah it was born out of like you know some dude named like tomcat um (laughs) it was some type of energy worker who uh, was a semen retention practitioner and Mm. didn't like what I was saying and and thoughts you know ejaculation depletes your body of all these vital nutrients and me being you know somewhat humble, I, I, I hope, or I try to be, I, I was looking at that, because I think he was specifically talking about zinc, and that there's a significant zinc loss with every ejaculation, and your body needs that. I'm like, all right, that's new to me. That sounds like bullshit. But um, maybe I'm wrong. Let's maybe I didn't the read the right thing. Roll the right, yeah. So I was like, okay, let me look into it. And then yeah, that's bullshit. Um, I was right in my, <laughs> in my assumption. But then, you know, they, they make it sound very convincing. Um, not only just random people on, you know, in a comment section, but the websites devoted to, uh, some type of masturbation abstinence, porn abstinence, and they cite a lot of studies and it makes it look legit and like, yeah, this is harmful, or this could be uh, damaging to yourself or to your relationships. It's damaging to society. They make a convincing case on the surface, but once you start scratching that surface and look at the the citations or the research that they're actually citing, um, their arguments start falling apart very quickly, and what is left is just their own personal biases and morality that mm. is opposed to masturbation or their own sexual shame that's wrapped up into it that they have to justify trying to cut back or abstain from masturbation altogether with a lot of pseudoscience, not, pseudoscientific nonsense. And that's really the kind of the, the essence of the book. It's just all these ridiculous masturbation myths that have been spouted for hundreds of years and how that misinformation from even the 18th and 19th centuries are really no different than the misinformation that exists right now and that was the most surprising thing as i was researching and writing the book of how yeah we can laugh at you know what this physician was talking about in the 1830s uh, thinking that masturbation was the cause of all a whole host of different diseases and offering ridiculous cures but that's just been repackaged and exists in a lot of different circles right now, among religious moralists, among wellness influencers on, on social media. Um, yeah, it's, it's just repackaging all this same pseudoscientific nonsense. And so that's kind of what the, the book's really about: of kind of showing that and offering what the research actually says on masturbation and how, yeah, if you do it, you're fine. It's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're going to be all right. Right.
0: Totally. Yeah, I guess a follow up quickly is like, what do these people have to gain? These snake oil salesmen—is it just kind of like them spreading their own morality and kind of their own opinions in order to gain a following, or is—is is it usually attached to like them making money off of like a book that they're writing? Like, what what's going on here? Like, what's behind this?
1: Yeah, all of the above. You know, you see it, and a lot of different motivations. One is that it's essentially just proselytizing that the underlying objection is that this goes against my religious beliefs. This is a sin, but trying to convince people that you're going to go to hell for touching your genitals isn't a, the strongest argument anymore is too abstract. No one cares. So you have to start packaging in like some health effects into that. It's like you're not only going to go to hell. So that's where you're going to spend eternity. But right now you're going to go, uh, you know, you're going to get uh, acne. You're going to deplete in testosterone. You're going to develop depression and social anxiety. All these things that they have to make up to make it sound more convincing. And so part of that is proselytizing. Mm mm-hmm. Other things is, you know, obviously they're dealing with a lot of their own sexual shame and one kind of a support group of like, yeah, we're in this together, right? right? There's whole communities like NoFap community, right? Of just a bunch of bros saying like, yeah, we're trying not to masturbate. And we have this whole online community trying to encourage each other not to do this. Um, so just wanting some sense of community and belonging for their own sexual shame and their pursuit of abstinence. And then, yeah, some for some people, it's a grift right and a lot of the people that i've been making fun of more recently on twitter um are more on the grift end of it they're kind of like this masculine wellness kind of pages um
0: always they're always men. i don't know that's yeah. at least how it feels right like i i don't know is that kind of like the trend that for from the research like or or am yeah. i being sexist
1: century no centuries old trend i i th- I sought out to do this book, very gender neutral, not even inserting gender uh, much at all, if I didn't need to, because I thought like, okay, we're talking about genitals, and we're talking about a behavior, right? I don't really need to, you know, insert gender into this. But that quickly proved impossible because so much of the prohibitions are gendered, primarily focusing on men. And a lot. most of the research is gendered, too. So I, I did start having to incorporate it. But what's interesting about the masculine piece is that masculinity is has been really tied into this belief that you shouldn't masturbate, that that's uh, effeminate to masturbate, mm. not only because it shows that you lack control over yourself, right? So not a masculine ideal, but also the belief that masturbation causes a whole host of physical problems that essentially feminize, quote unquote, um, a person. And so therefore, it robs you of your masculinity. And so, you know, Physicians were talking about this, again, in like the 1700s and the early 1800s, and these wellness grif- grifters now who are essentially just misogynists looking for like substex subscribers and subscribers to their YouTube channel, that they're, sp- they're spouting the same nonsense that if you masturbate, you're going to deplete yourself in testosterone, you're not going to have the muscle mass, you're not going to attract women, it's all, the, it's, it's, it's all nonsense, but it's all built into what they think is a, an idealized masculinity
0: fascinating really really fascinating and like thinking on it you know whenever I have conversations around porn it is usually my cis male friends who have this kind of like idea that well I don't watch any porn at all because I find it very addictive and I think it's really problematic and blah 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 and like I often find that, like you said before around people's biases, it's like, no, you just think that you have a problem with it and then therefore you feel like because you have a problem with it, everyone has a problem with it. And it's Mm -hmm. the same thing about masturbation. It's like most people can do this healthy, healthily. Most people can watch porn in a healthy way. It adds fantasy, X, Y, and Z. Like we talk about ethical porn. There are all sorts of conversations around it. And I don't have any conversations with my cis women friends around this. And like, mm-hmm. granted the messaging, you know, when we're talking specifically about like cis boys and cis girls is very different around like what, you know, porn you should be watching or what you are allowed to be watching, how much masturbation you should be doing. And so I'm sure mm-hmm. these messages that we've been receiving ever since we were little have immense impact on us later in life. Um right. Does any of your research kind of cover like throughout the lifespan of like what, what this messaging kind of the impact that it has on folks, or is it more of kind of like in a certain time period?
1: Well, I do take a little bit of a developmental approach. I don't think, uh, across the lifespan like that. Like, so the, the first chapter does talk about more like childhood sexual development and how masturbation is perfectly natural and normal, including, uh, ultrasound evidence that fetuses masturbate. Um, All the way to the last chapter before the conclusion that focuses on older adulthood and older adults masturbating up to the point in in, including in long term care facilities, including within hospice care and including uh, grieving widows, uh, reincorporating sexuality and masturbation Mm -hmm. into their life after the loss of of a loved one. So it does span the the whole developmental course, but looking at kind of those those cumulative effects there, there just is not the research to kind of back anything up with with looking at the the long term effects of some of the the cultural messages that that we receive so but we are left to, to speculate and I think it's an easy speculation like, kind of like what you were saying um, uh, especially for well one the the gender difference right that my book does cover a lot with with female sexuality and female masturbation. And my editor was really good of like, you need more stuff about women in here. And I, I was coming back like, I know there's just not much <laughs> to cite. And that's a problem with right. s- sexuality research in general, right? And our cultural understanding of female sexuality is just historically it's been ignored, right? Um, so that's why the, the bulk of the research is, is focused on men thinking that this is a male issue, that they're only interested in it, and it's their problem, right? And it's not it's sexual desire. We all have it. Um, but... Interestingly, with the like the self-diagnosing, like kind of what you're talking about of wanting to abstain from porn Mm -hmm. because they think that they're doing it too much or they feel out of control, yeah, that's largely what the the research says is that it is a self-diagnosis. Even apart from, you know, it's not an actual DSM diagnosis, but um, even if it was uh, that we all agreed on this is the diagnostic criteria. There is a large subset of individuals who the the problem stems from their own self diagnosing of it because they personally feel out of control. And why they feel out of control and why it's easy to feel out of control is because they're telling themselves I shouldn't be watching porn, but they're doing it anyways. So that's just known as moral incongruence. Mm. A lot of moral incongruence work is being done by a great professor, um, Joshua Grubbs. I think he's at University of New Mexico now. He's published a lot on this topic. And that's really a strong predictor of those who are like self-identified sex addicts, porn addicts, masturbation addicts, is that it results from this incongruence between one's sexual values and one's sexual behaviors. Because that makes sense then, right? If we're not, if we're doing something that we're telling ourselves we shouldn't be doing, we're going to feel bad about that. We're going to feel out of control. Mm-hmm. And even put clinical language on it, we're going to feel addicted
0: Right, to it. Totally. Yeah. This is so great. I have like so many more specific questions mm-hmm. around your chapters just because I think it's just chock full of so much inter- interesting research and information so I want to kind of start with this religious piece. We You kind of touched on it a little bit before, and when I kind of mentioned, you know, people are hitting up our DMs around like, I'm ashamed, I'm guilty, I think it's wrong, I think it's a sin. Like, religion definitely plays a huge part in this. Uh, and you have a chapter that's called Palm Sunday, fantastic title, mm-hmm. um, about how different religions view masturbation and the history behind it. And I wonder if you can kind of give us, obviously this is thousands and thousands of years of history, but if you can just give us like a brief synopsis on this and what you personally find most interesting.
1: Yeah. So I'm certainly not a theologian, but um, what was most interesting to me was how simple the messaging was um, across religions about masturbation prohibition. And I, I, in the chapter, I focus specifically on Catholicism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. And I throw Satanism in, in there just for good measure as kind of like a, a counterweight sure. <laughs> to, the, to those others. Because those others uh, really all say the same thing, that the the belief is that the genitals are to be used for the soul and God-given purpose for expressing marital love in the hopes of procreating. And that that's it. That's the message. So anything that deviates from that God-given purpose, purpose, right, um, is considered a sin. And masturbation is not uniquely prohibited because pretty much every sexual behavior they can think of is not Vatican approved. So masturbation just falls into that, right? Um, Occasionally, though, it will get special attention since it's the easiest and most accessible behavior to engage in. Um, Some clergy members will kind of single it out as being like the, the The greater risk because it's always at your fingertips, oh, you can wow. sin at any time right um they they view it as like a gateway to other types of sins mm, even historically drug. right yeah exactly um one of the kind of where all this pseudoscience that masturbation leads to you know all these negative health outcomes really originated in like the early seventeen hundreds from this pamphlet known as uh, Onania that was starting to to circulate in London in other parts of England at the time. And even though it was new that it was introducing some health effects related to masturbation that they claimed, it was largely still grounded in kind of this religious, moralistic prohibition of masturbation and thinking that it was a slippery slope of sin, that once you start masturbating, then you'll start stealing and then you'll start murdering. Oh, it was a very quick jump. (laughs) That
0: escalated quickly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it did. And that would would be interesting to see, but it doesn't play out uh, that way. Um, so what's interesting too, even with the clergy argument that it's, it's really straightforward. It's simple. I was surprised of how simple of a message it is. Um, so clergy will often say that, you know, it's, it's prohibited because it goes against what your genitals are supposed to be used for according to God's plan. All right. Simple enough. It's considered a sin and whether or not sin includes like hellfire and stuff like that. But as I was mentioning earlier, like that's not often enough to convince people. Hell is too abstract. And infinity is, is, is too much of an abstract concept to really wrap our heads around. So even clergy then start incorporating health misinformation about the effects of masturbation to try to convince their congregations that masturbation is wrong. And therefore, it's not only sinful, but it's going to physically, mentally, relationally hurt you. And so an example, one of my favorite uh, stories from from the book that I came across it's this Christian pastor in Uganda, he wrote a blog post several years ago about all the reasons why Christians should not masturbate. And it was like 13 reasons or something. And most of them is uh, the, it's what you would expect, right? That you're going to go to hell, that you're inviting demons into your life as it's going to ruin your marriage or prevent you from getting married, all these things. But then there was an interesting like mythology inserted into it that I'd never heard before, haven't heard since. That this guy, and this uh, apparently only applies to to male Christians for for this one particular reason why Christians shouldn't masturbate, that he he argued that when you masturbate and ejaculate, that demons will steal your semen and sperm, take it into the ocean, mix it with Satan's reproductive fluid. Doesn't elaborate what oh. that fluid is. I don't know if Satan ovulates or has some type of semen that bonds with human semen. It's an egg. I'm clear. Right, yeah. Some type of mixing with Satan's reproductive fluid. And this produces the offspring known as mermaids, of course. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Logical conclusion, reason, I right? I had a
0: feeling you were going to say that when you said ocean. I was like, Little Mermaid yeah. is coming up for yeah. me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like Little Mermaid fan fiction or an origin story for the Little Mermaid that cool. no one asked it's for. Like- <laughs> <laughs> right. But this just came out of left field. but. Believed it that, yeah, another scare tactic that you not only have to worry about masturbation, like ruining your health and your marriage or your relationship, but also that you could have all these unaccounted for uh, mermaid offspring living in the ocean someplace that I guess you're responsible for in some capacity. I don't know. They didn't elaborate beyond
0: (laughs) Any child support or what's going on there? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Really wacky. Um Okay, so, as a Jew, I feel kind of really bummed out to hear that around mm-hmm. you know Jewish people and not really not only you know being encouraged not to masturbate, but I would kind of expect based on like, oh, you know, it's a mitzvah when you have sex on Shabbat, but that's only really for like reproductive purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and like technically, I mean, I could be wrong, but my understanding in Judaism is that like, there isn't really a hell I don't really know. That's Mm -hmm. at least what I feel like I learned when I randomly went to synagogue as a youth. So (laughs) I wonder, like, what, what's behind that, like, if there, and, and maybe it is, like you said, across the board, if it's for reproduction, then maybe it's celebrated. But because it's for yourself, then it's not celebrated. Like, was there any other kind of things when you were learning about judaism and masturbation Mm -hmm. just self selfishly i'm curious um yeah like what was up with that
1: most of the messaging came out of um arguments within the the talmud um and so and i had to educate myself i'm not a theologian especially not within jewish studies Uh, i grew up catholic so i could dive into the catholicism stuff a little bit from Mm -hmm. like lived experience but the other religions were like all new so i was trying to understand them as best as possible um, but I kind—I think I made the argument too of like, you know, you don't have to be a theologian to reject health misinformation, right? If like Stan Lee and the, the 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 Marvel, uh, you know, Spider-Man universe said that, oh yeah, the the web coming out of his wrist is actually ejaculate, we can recognize like, no, that you know that that doesn't actually happen in real life. I don't have to un- know everything about the the Marvel universe to, 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 that. to reject that, right? right? So I, I felt somewhat confident that I can like, okay, this is what these religions are saying, and I can at least argue against the health misinformation right so the the spiritual battles like i have, I have no buy-in for that mm-hmm. you can you know argue whatever you think is happening spiritually um but within judaism specifically uh, it was in the talmud that they're interpreting the story of onan um uh, from the book of genesis like the you know uh withdrew and spilt his seed upon the ground right and so that's often viewed that story as an anti-masturbation kind of warning and yes and no the 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 mechanism is, is less important, the mechanism of masturbation. The, the sin was disobedience of God and God's mandate to, to reproduce with your dead brother's spouse to can, can t- carry on his name. But the act of wasting seed mm. that was viewed as the sin or however it's called disappointing God in that way, disappointing to the point that Onan was killed uh, by God for this. Um, so in the Talmud, it's, it's rabbis over the course of a couple of centuries arguing and interpreting what that story actually means and how that can play out in, in real life. We can use that as guidance of how we can ensure ourselves that we're not wasting our seed. Um women are not included in this conversation at all so they were at least spared (laughs) right they were at least spared from this kind of uh shaming and like obsessiveness of like trying to inspect oneself in the morning for evidence of uh of, you know, a nocturnal emission. But then a rabbi chimed in and was like, well, during this inspection, make sure that you're not touching yourself enough to become aroused. And then ironically, actually ejaculate from that inspection. So it'd be good idea to use a rock or some type of rough cloth in order to inspect yourself. And so all these ridiculous things, it's just like, oh, Oh my goodness. This has to be (laughs) exhausting to kind of live this way of this concern. And one rabbi even suggested like you shouldn't even hold your penis to urinate because that could lead to fondling and fondling leads to arousal and arousal leads to orgasm and wasted seed. Right. So it's like, debates, serious academic debates going on. Yeah. Um, so that was largely the extent of it. And then, you know, obviously all all the, uh, different uh, schism and and sects and and branches of Judaism now can take different interpretations of that and kind of dismiss it completely or or try to work it in. There's one book written by a rabbi about 20 years ago called kosher sex. And he addressed this a lot. Uh, he tries to come across as progressive, but you know, in my view, it's, it's, Progressive means a little bit <laughs> different sure. uh, than a rabbi writing a book on on kosher sexuality. Um, but still largely kind of what you were saying that, yeah, it's celebrated within relationships mm-hmm. and any sexual behavior that takes you away from your relationship so it's viewed as kind of selfish and so this mm-hmm. is where it's not focused just on a wasted seed or gender that um, is taking you away from your partner right and the goal should be joining behaviors not independent behaviors so it's really against kind of like this individual idea that sexuality exists within ourselves and can be expressed just for ourselves it always has to be relational
0: Here are my top three favorite things I love about UberLube. Number one, UberLube makes sex feel a lot more pleasurable. It's as simple yet as powerful as that. Number two, UberLube is recommended by leading doctors and its body friendly ingredient list is widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. And number three, UberLube will not stain clothing or bedding. Any spills can be easily cleaned with detergent and water. Get your bottle of UberLube now with code SexEdWithDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Small business owners, freelancers, and contractors, listen up. If you're running a small business and you're making at least $60,000 in profit each year, you're going to love Collective. Collective is the all-in-one financial solution for self-employed people. They let you focus on your passion and not your paperwork. Collective handles all the corporate formation and compliance paperwork, taxes, bookkeeping, accounting, and even payroll. Go to Collective.com now and use code Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E to receive one month free and make sure to tell them that sex ed with DB sent you. Ever since getting engaged to my wonderful fiance, I've been thinking about ways to keep things fun and novel between us, but I, of course, wanted to feel organic. I wanna be able to feel sexy and comfortable in my body while trying something new. Thanks to Lion's Den, a new adventure I've been exploring is the world of lingerie. I never really was a big lingerie girl myself, but once I started trying on lingerie that accentuated my curves, felt super soft to the touch, and made me look in the mirror and felt wildly confident in my skin, that changed pretty quickly. Plus, when I searched for what I might like on Lion's Den's website, I saw models that actually looked like me. They were curvy and thick and voluptuous, and it made all the difference to see models that had my body type. Want to join me in my new lingerie chapter? Right now, you can use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your purchase in-store and online at lionsden.com. Follow them on social media at lionsdenadult on IG and TikTok for exclusive offers, deals, and giveaways. Abortion access is changing, and at the same time that safe, modern telehealth options emerge, politicians are passing harmful bans to block access and win votes, impacting marginalized and low-income communities the most. But there is hope, in the form of five pills. Plan C is a national nonprofit campaign on abortion pills, a safe and effective modern method used up to 12 weeks. At plancpills.org, you will find a 50-state guide to pills, which includes FAQs, in-depth resources, and free hotlines to understand legal risk and get medical support. Plan C's mission is to spread the word about this medically safe, modern method and all the different routes of access, including activists, telehealth providers, and getting pills in advance. Because access to safe abortion care should not depend on your zip code. Visit plancpills.org to learn more and join the movement. And make sure to check out Plancy's merch store and use code DB for 10% off. All merch proceeds go to a rotating list of abortion support organizers. I would love to to transition to talking about like tools and toys for masturbation because I mm. feel like mm-hmm. that – you know, transitioning a little bit to like the positives of masturbation. Like there's, yeah. there's so many health benefits and there, you know, I think there is starting to be more and more research on this. Definitely in the last like 10 years, I feel like there's been way more than previously. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you can fact check me on that. Maybe there has been a lot, <laughs> but I feel like it hasn't really been as like a sex educator myself. And as Someone who got a master's in public health, I feel like that was something I was really seeking out during my degree and it didn't feel like there was a ton available um right. but I do think it's shifting and changing but anyway, back to this idea you know I want to talk about like tools and toys and like the joy of of masturbating um and how kind of like tools and toys have maybe changed over time and what that landscape looked like
1: yeah, so this kind of came into the humans landscape at least. 30,000 years ago, possibly um, a penis shaped tool sharpener was found in a cave in Germany during an excavation that was that old. And it's debatable whether the device was specifically used for any type of, you know, sexual gratification. It was definitely used for some type of tool sharpening given kind of the cuts on it. But, you know, a tool sharpener doesn't have to look like a penis. So then there's debate of like, was this figurative art? Was it used in rituals or was it, you know, dildo. early dildo? Right. Exactly. Because, Dildos have been pictured in art for thousands of, of years, and so probably somebody was forming it out of, like, siltstone or, like, clay or something. So that's always kind of been present for almost as long as human, homo sapiens have existed. But the big, big game changer was uh, the invention of the vibrator. And, um, common myth is that the vibrator was specifically invented to cure like women's quote unquote hysteria right. of the time in the late 1800s. It was not, that's just a myth. Um, and, and in fact it was invented specifically just for men. Uh, the inventor didn't want anything to do with like women's health. He thought maybe the, the percussion was going to be like too much, uh, for, for dainty Victorian area women or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, obviously a lot of sexism within medicine. Um, but yeah, it was invented for men uh, for a whole host of physical complaints, and it was estimated to be used sexually, the vibrator, early 20th century. So, you know, if it was invented for like this percussive kind of medical treatment in the late 1890s um, and then starting to be used in the early 1900s that's what the historian um, Dr. Kate Lister uh, refers to as a kink blink. And I love that term. And that's the time from when something is invented to when that invention starts to be used sexually. And it's usually very quick uh, known as a kink blink, right? So with the invention of the vibrator, yes, it wasn't invented for sexual purposes, but it was probably used for sexual purposes very, very quickly. Um, So, and the vibrator itself has an interesting history and, there's another researcher at the university i go to um dr dennis wallscale he's a sociologist he, he wrote a paper on kind of categorizing this timeline from the late 1800s when vibrators were first invented that it was originally sold as like a medical device that it's going to treat all sorts of ailments right um and when the ama kind of released a statement be like no it doesn't then the vibrator starts like falling out of favor within as a medical device and then started just being sold as a household appliance Um, And then starting in the 1960s and 70s, Viber was starting to be used or viewed as a tool for liberation. And so a lot of like feminist owned sex shops started popping up in San Francisco and New York originally. And viewing those spaces as like collective liberation and how masturbation uh, led a lot by um, Betty Dotson. Um, how collective liberation can come from understanding one's own sexuality and expressing oneself through masturbation and the, the liberation effects from uh, using a vibrator for masturbation. And then, unfortunately, it's kind of gone away from a tool for liberation and is now viewed as kind of more of a, a consumer toy for self-care. And it's like, oh, I can Get this through Amazon Prime and I'll be here by 10 p.m. for some me time tonight, right? Right, right. It's it's very kind of packaged in that way, very individualized health as opposed to like collective
0: liberation. I think what I'm wondering is do you think that there are downsides to it more being like an individualistic thing? Like is there more kind of like shame and kind of like repression with it more being like a, oh, Amazon – prime kind of like oh y- you can be quiet about this rather than us like talking about it in a collective or do you know what i mean
1: yeah um what i was seeing is that it's not necessarily tied to shame but just more of kind of like a cultural shift of like who's responsible for healthcare right and the well-being of a society we moved away from public health and it's more like an individual Right. That you're responsible for your own health. So here's some wellness tips that you can do during your lunch break and you're, you're going to be all set to get back to work. Right, right? right, It's less about like collective organizing for better wages and better health care. Um, it's more about what you can do as an individual. And I think um, our relationship with masturbation and especially the commercial aspects of it with like buying sex toys. It's just kind of followed that trend right. that it's more about individualized wellness, more so than kind of the secrecy of the individualized nature of it. And more of just like, no, that's my responsibility. Right. If I want to feel better, it's, it's on me. It's not I don't have to worry about what other people are doing. There's collective action. Right. It's, it's all on me. And, you know, I, I ended the book and my conclusion, kind of addressing this a little bit more, because as I was writing it, I realized like it was making this shift. And we kind of lost that spirit of the 1960s and 70s with collective liberation and that to liberate masturbation also means to liberate a lot of other things related to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of turned that into like almost a consumer product of just individualized wellness and self-care. And right. we package it and get HR directives of what to do on our breaks and everything, make sure we're standing and sitting enough. Um and so I get a little cynical of how masturbation is talked about in those circles of like it's it's self care, but also not dismissing it completely because it's it's what we have, right? right. An individual can't change the system in which we're living in. So we do have to cope with the system that we're living in. And if the best way that we can cope in a particular moment is to make that purchase for a dildo to or a vibrator to arrive by ten PM tonight for some alone me time in the bathtub, then Great. Have at it. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. That, that's not a bad thing on the individual level, right? We can critique it on like, is this doing anything collectively for a, a movement, right? And we can argue not much. Um, but on the individual level, yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine and understandable where this is coming from in necessary, quote, me time.
0: Yeah. That's kind of why I want to bring back like sex toy, like Tupperware-like parties, because I yeah, feel no. like, mm-hmm. you know, like young women in particular- and young queer people like 18 19 20 year olds in college right like they in america at least most likely got like pretty shit sex ed and if they got good Mm -hmm. sex ed they were very lucky and that's not the norm and then they go to college where there's typically you know a lot of kind of like openness they're experimenting they're having sex for the first time in some cases And that I think is the perfect opportunity to kind of bring back these old kind of like sex toy parties to really Mm -hmm. like engage with folks individually, but also on this collective level where people aren't only learning about sexuality and sexual health on the internet, which is how typically folks, young folks specifically are learning on their TikTok or their Instagram, but they're like actually engaging in like an open dialogue in person around sex toys, masturbation, pleasure. And I think there's like a huge gap there, um, that Mm -hmm. I wonder like how, how to reach those people other than kind of like pitching, you know, sororities or like individual kind of groups where like a lot of these women in particular are, Um, yeah. Like, do you have any, is it kind of like buy my book? Like, you know, like do a book (laughs) club. Is that, is that kind of like part of that or what, what do you see that gap as?
1: No, not my book. Uh, and I, I shouldn't be saying, don't buy my book. Um, <laughs> but no, for, for that reason, no, don't buy my book. It's not self-help. It's right. not prescriptive. Right, and, right, right. and as you were talking about that, I was thinking like, yeah, there there is definitely a need of a lot of that spirit that came out of the 60s and 70s in some of these very sex positive spaces that were very educational, very transformative Um That, you know, some of them still exist. You know, we have one here in in Minneapolis. That's, that's great. Um, that, that does that. And if you, you know, they, they put on events and and, and things like that, but even just a a regular consumer by themselves walking in they're they're going to be, um, you know, greeted by sex educators that can really, that they, they know the business of masturbation and, and and the pleasure of masturbation that they can walk that customer through the various types of vibrators and dildos and what's safe, what's not, what's the best for them. Mm-hmm. And my book doesn't touch on that at all. Right. Right? There are plenty of people kind of doing that work, but I think to do that more on a collective level, level I, I think our culture would really benefit from that. And I'm thinking back to Betty Dotson's, um, body sex uh groups back in the the 70s in which yeah she had people huddled into her little Manhattan apartment and it was essentially a masturbation show and tell mm-hmm. right and there was a lot of normalizing bodies normalizing behaviors and moans and the weird faces that we make in ecstasy and and all these things that we're not only discovering ourselves but we're learning from others and then the diversity of sexuality and sexual expression and what that can look like in group settings that's hard to get through just like solo study right of, of the topic online
0: totally yeah Really interesting. Stay tuned, folks, if we're, we're going to be <laughs> doing something like that in the future. Um, but speaking of cis women, I would love to know a little bit more about female ejaculate because I feel like this is a topic that is like highly debated. There's like not enough research. People get confused about like squirting versus female ejaculate versus other kinds of vaginal fluids. And I wonder if you can set the record straight.
1: Sure. Yeah. And it's because I it was alluding to earlier of like you know, same reason why we don't know more about female sexuality in in general is the reason why we don't know much about female ejaculation, that female uh, female sexual functioning has historically just been viewed as inconsequential, right? As long as there's an erection and ejaculation of semen, what else is necessary for sex, right? So it certainly has gotten overlooked. And also the belief that women aren't even concerned about their own sexuality, their own sexual pleasure and satisfaction. So that has just led to dearth of information on basic questions, right? That we should know with confidence of like what's going on and be able to communicate that clearly to uh, people who are asking the questions. And And we don't, right? We have like, well, the best that we know is this, right? And female ejaculation is one of those topics where, yeah, it has been studied a little bit, um, when we're looking at expulsion of fluid during sex, we can look at vaginal lubrication that sometimes can come out during orgasmic contractions that's coming from the vagina itself. And then the, the, differentiating between ejaculate and squirting and some of the articles that I cite in the book that kind of differentiate that was really kind of making the distinction between the fluid's uh, consistency with ejaculate being thicker and squirting being uh, thinner and the color ejaculate being a little bit of an off-white color like not as clear as, as squirting fluid is and the volume of the fluid with ejaculate being significantly less and squirting being significantly more, both of which are coming from the urethra, and then the debate over: well, is squirting just pee? Right? Is it just urine? And some analyses uh, have shown it to be pretty indistinguishable from diluted urine, assuming that it, the, the 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 amount, the volume of the fluid, has to be coming from the bladder. Um, but with like the, the ejaculate more believed to be coming from the skein's gland, which is homologous to the prostate because it actually has PSA in it. Um, so, yeah, th- there's all these different chemical components and they they get crosswalk and they get a little bit of a mix up, too, because at least with ejaculate and squirting, they're coming out of the same ducting. Right? They're coming out of the urethra and so they can pick up chemical components from different parts of the body in that way. So there can be contamination of the, the fluid during analysis. For me, what I was trying to argue in the book, like I present all that and try to differentiate a little bit of what the research has shown. But the bigger issue to kind of take a step back is why is this important? And right? it's important to understand our, our bodies and know know what's up. But I, I think the the questions around female ejaculation stem more from kind of anxiety, embarrassment, insecurity over the question of am I urinating? Is this urine? Or is this normal? This is gross. This is what dudes do or something is a semen, right? Just not. And and I think if we look at it, that how is that different than culturally, the cultural message of just being grossed out by anything fluid wise that's coming out of a woman. Mm. And so I think that's part of the larger uh, conversation is that, do we really need to differentiate it? Will they actually make people feel better about it? Because largely, we're grossed out about bodily fluids. And so let's focus on reducing that disgust over natural normal bodily functions and so kind of making the argument of that even if it is diluted urine that is squirting out does it feel good mm. is it pleasurable does it add to your sexuality and sexual experience and se- satisfaction whether alone or with a partner get a couple more towels right we give the freedom to semen to go wherever it wants during sex and even viewing semen, visually viewing it as an indication that sex has taken place. Mm. I feel like all bodily fluids should have that same freedom and that, that same level of legitimacy that if you're seeing the fluid that, Hey, people are having fun here, right? right? Sex is, sex is having, um, and then it's just on the, 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 personal experience of like, do I actually like this? um, because there was one article that came out from Europe that looked at, it was qualitative, so it looked at those experiences of women who do squirt. And some were kind of let down that it wasn't as big of a deal as they, they heard it would be. Others were a little embarrassed or shamed or had partners that were kind of grossed out by it. Um, others felt like it was a, a feminine superpower, Right. And that and kind of taking it back that now we can squirt just like the the guys have always squirted. And then like I'm taking ownership of this like fluid space in in, in sex as well. So you're gonna have a, a wide variety of different perceptions uh, of this bodily function, but ultimately it's normal, it's fine, and just focus on does it feel good? Um, and if so, then there's nothing to worry about. Get a couple more towels,
0: right, right,
1: right. <laughs> a couple more loads of laundry you'll be fine, right? Dump your partner if they're grossed out by it. It's an issue. (laughs) Right. Right? There's a lot lot of things that you can do um, to feel better about it. But just knowing from a health perspective, there's nothing wrong with
0: it. Totally. And I really like this piece on like, okay, like we have been grossed out about periods. We've been grossed out Mm -hmm. about other kinds of discharge and fluids and like the ways in which that vaginas in particular operate and like it's time that we just know information about our bodies and other people's bodies and just feel okay with it and normalize it and that is a really important key there amazing i would love we have a couple more questions um i would Mm -hmm. love for you to hit us with some masturbation facts that maybe we didn't know before um you know if you want to throw in some benefits of masturbation any science behind it the research uh anything you got
1: sure um Well, one thing in terms of like just a benefit that masturbation, specifically a technique called directed masturbation, is an empirically supported treatment for women who cannot have an orgasm. So it's often doctor prescribed, not doing it in session, but there's a a step by step process of um, a woman who has difficulty orgasming or has never had an orgasm in their life. It involves ultimately masturbating typically with a, a vibrator and it's empirically sound. You know, a lot of sex therapy techniques are very commonly used by sex therapists but they don't actually have the greatest research behind them to being effective um including the stop start technique for premature ejaculation i talk about a little bit because it's like a you know, masturbation technique too. Um, that actually doesn't have the greatest research behind it as being all that successful, but directed masturbation for female orgasmic disorder, very, very, uh, effective. So masturbation coming to the rescue for those who cannot have an orgasm. Typically the complaint is not having an orgasm with a partner and then having to, to learn how to have one by yourself first. Um, let's see what else. Um, one interesting little thing that I came across uh, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was a physician named Dr. Benjamin Rush. Believed that masturbation could be caused by cause a whole host of different diseases and illnesses, and to prevent the urge to masturbate, he suggested that people should take long journeys on horseback that uh, they should study mathematics for some reason um, I mean, and not if I was studying. Math, right. I, yeah. I, 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 I did consult with a math professor on campus and, and they denied this, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it doesn't work. Um, and not to look a woman directly in the face. So uh, that's uh, Dr. Rush, one of uh, the founding fathers, uh, advice for masturbation. Um, and I guess lastly here, I have a in one chapter, uh, kind of talk about foreign body insertions and kind of exploring masturbation beyond just uh, stimulation of the genitals externally, uh, that people love sticking things inside themselves uh, to masturbate. There was a German case study of a guy who uh, would put maggots, live maggots, oh. into his urethra. Oh has been doing this for you he was middle-aged and he's been doing this since he was a kid always had no problem of them coming out during orgasm or ejaculation until they didn't um and that's why he's a case study right anytime you end up as a case study you know something did not go according to plan oh, no. um so they had he was fine he had to be surgically removed uh the maggots um because they were doing some damage to his urethra oh, but God. um he was fine but they got stuck and Probably an embarrassing case. And then I, I spoke with, because I was starting to talk about this a little bit on Instagram, and I um, got into a DM conversation with an ER physician. And she said that she removed 20 Happy Meal toys from a man's rectum.
0: 20. Once.
1: And so 20, oh 20. Uh, gives a little new meaning to the McDonald's slogan. I'm loving it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we love putting things in ourselves, uh, all different orifices. And we won't stop. Vagina, Listen, rec- we, are, we're gonna stop. We're not going to stop. Not at all. It. Right. And most of the time, we're fine with it. Right, and I, I kept trying to reiterate that it wasn't like a uh, a cautionary tale or like scare tactics or anything. It was like you know, yeah, most of the time people insert things in themselves. They can do it safely. They can do it healthily. Here's some tips for for how to do that. Um, but when you're doing a PubMD or a, a PubMed search for articles about like masturbation injuries you see where it's not always safe. It's not always healthy and where we went really, really wrong for some unfortunate few. And so right. that was a fun little uh, rabbit hole to go down.
0: Totally, And for, you know, we get to study those cases, which is really great um, and see kind of the anomalies. But what we know as sex educators, as you were kind of talking about before, is that masturbation is really healthy for most people. Like we at on sex ed with DB talk all the time about how it can help you sleep better, de-stress you, or just kind of make you feel like more confident in your body. Um, You know, it could make you feel like you know how to please yourself and therefore tell a partner how to please you. Like there are just so Mm -hmm. many benefits to masturbation. And actually, we recently did, or we, I recently did a magic wand masturbation experiment. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll send you the the link there, but I just, (laughs) I just think that Ultimately, people getting more in tune with themselves and their pleasure, if that's something that they want and they feel fulfilled by, is always a good thing and can really, really add so much to people's lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I end the book a little bit talking about some of those benefits. I kind of hinted at them throughout the chapters. But at the end, I try to solidify it a little bit more, a little bit of a caution of not overgeneralizing some of the, the research or misinterpreting the research of like masturbation can cause X, Y, or Z health benefits Right. Uh, because most of it is just kind of correlational research. But there are neurochemical reactions within orgasm that help explain why for some it's best um, it's used for sleep Mm -hmm. or to relax or for pain management, right? There are chemicals involved with orgasm, not just from masturbation, but orgasm in general, that would explain why somebody would have that experience. But uh, results may vary. But What's interesting with that is f- the research that showed those health benefits and the motivations for people to masturbate, including some of those things like pain relief, stress management, uh, better sleep, things like that. Um, what's often overlooked was the number number one we- reason cited to masturbate, which was just it feels. People good,
0: want to because right? it, feel, yeah, yeah, it exactly. feels yeah exactly pleasurable.
1: Yeah. So my caution kind of at the end of the book is that making sure that we're not needing to legitimize masturbation by saying that this is something that's good for you. Right. That it needs to be on your to-do list, like All eating right. six you know, servings of vegetables a day and making sure you're getting your 10,000 steps or whatever. It's like, no, masturbation is just a momentary behavior. Most of the time it's inconsequential. At best, it feels good. And you feel and that's joy it's, or it's, happiness right. or whatever kind of exactly. hap-
0: good feeling associated with it. Release, whatever yeah. that word is for you.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's all the validation ways that we need to legitimize it, uh, can just end with that is that it feels
0: good totally. and it's
1: not going to hurt you. Yes. And that, that's, a, it's as simple as I'm
0: right there with you. Um, Eric, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for being on. Um, I wonder if you can share, uh, what you're working on or what's next for you and where our listeners can find and follow you and buy your book.
1: Yeah, sure. So what's next is just trying to get the word out about this book over the next couple of months um, until it's published uh, in the spring. And you can follow along with any updates um, on my socials. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and threads i forget like every two weeks i'm like oh yeah that's oh, still yeah. a thing and i <laughs> make some replication post right. from another platform on there just to keep it active but all three of those i'm at dr sprankle and also dr you can visit that has the link uh at least to amazon but it's any bookseller is carrying the the pre-order copy of it right now
0: awesome well thank you again so much uh can't wait to read your book in full uh and and get that hardcover i'm very very excited uh, and yeah, really, again, huge fan. So thank you for being on. Thanks for having me. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalow. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Ligi. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. Want to rep us with some brand new Sex ed With D B merch? Go to sexedwithdb.com merch to check it out now. See you next time.